This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And back in America, we have our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Howdy. (laughs) (laughs) That transatlantic flight really changed you, Richard. (laughs) No more bonjour. It's over now. It's over. Today, uh, Joanna Robinson is off on vacation, but we should say that uh, as we record, her cover story in Amelia Clark is out, and you should all read it. Uh, The photos are incredible. The story is great. I don't think I realized how funny Amelia Clark is until I read the story. So um, congratulations, Joanna. It's a great story. I know. And not to like pile on, but Joanna did such an awesome job with this. And she's literally, as we learned last week with the solo conversation with her and Cam, like she's one of the most knowledgeable people in the world on Star Wars and then also Game of Thrones. And so Amelia was like the perfect subject for her. And I think they had a lot of fun. And Amelia's, it's like a whole new side of how awesome Amelia is comes out in this story. They went to the Met. They sat in the cafeteria like regular people. But they went to the Met and took a tour, a Game of Thrones themed tour of the Met of all like the kind of badass women of history and art and everything. I mean, anyway, it's fun. And there's also a great video, Mike, that you tweeted where she, uh, Amelia Clark reenacts stock photos. (laughs) It's really funny. It does not sound like it sounds like what? But if you watch it, it's hilarious. She's just so funny. Like that is something that I hope we get to see more of. Get her in a comedy. Yep. Yeah, please. So in this week's episode, uh, we're going to catch up with Richard on Cannes. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, film debuting on HBO this week in The Tale. And then at the back half of the episode, we're going to share Mike's interview with Allison Brie, the star of Glow. So Mike will tell us more about that later. Um, but first, Richard, you're back from Cannes. Uh, since we last talked, they, there were the awards uh, at the end of the ser- at the end of the festival, which I think you were not around for, but following them intently like everybody else, right? Yeah, I was on a plane while the awards were being uh, given out, which is usually the case, um, just because it's a long time to stay for those. But yeah, there was a lot of question because, you know, again, like I said in past episodes, that it was a quiet year for big Oscar stuff and English language stuff. But there was a ton of strong foreign language stuff. There was a film from Italy from Alicia Rohrwacher called Lazaro Felice that like kind of took an early lead in the in the um, Palme d'Or predictions. But as a, a friend and I were talking about it. Trying to predict the Palme d'Or is ridiculous because it's a different jury every year. So there's no like voting pattern to go off of. It's right. all completely arbitrary. So you kind of just have to let it happen when it happens. Did you spend any time psychoanalyzing Kate Blanchett trying to figure out like what movie would what would Kate think of this? A lot of us did. I mean, the sort of obvious assumption was, you know, there are three films in competition directed by women. Like maybe the thinking is with the female president of the jury that they're going to try to go for that, which they did not. The movie that won uh, Corey Ayata's Shoplifters from Japan is really sweet, like sad, beautiful family drama that. I mean, I hope now that it won this big prize, people will get to see. And then second prize went to Spike Lee's Black Klansman, which, you know, was a big uh, vote of confidence for for that film and for Spike Lee, you know, who has made some interesting stuff in recent years, but has been a long time since he's had a kind of unanimously celebrated 
hit. So we'll see if that translates from the, you know, the croissette where everything feels a little bit bigger and a little bit more exciting maybe than it will, you know, in the dog days of summer. The movie comes out in August. I'm very curious to hear what American critics think about that. Are you expecting like a, a backlash or like a really different response? Um, I think I'm just expecting a more nuanced response, like a kind of more varied response, because the way that can functions, I mean, a lot of film festivals, unfortunately, are like this, but like Cannes, it's particularly glaring. It, you know, most of the people in the press line seeing movies are white. And and so most of the criticism coming out of the festival is written by white critics. Not all, by any means, but, but you know, enough that I feel like it skews things. So I'm just very curious to hear what, you know, black critics have to say about it, what, you know, people who are who have been more actively invested in protest movements have to say about it. Um, because from one angle, it could be seen as and the kind of the angle I chose to see it as like is this kind of work of irony that then in the end sort of shocks you into realizing that you've been kind of played the whole time. But I think others could read it as sort of without that meta context and just say, well, like, he's just kind of like softening this whole debate, like by making it just kind of this easy fix where this kind of nice story from the 70s that's very cartoony and sort of hyperbolized where like they beat the Klan and it was done, you know. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm very curious. Didn't three billboards do really well at Cannes? And then no, they did very well at Venice. At Venice, yeah. Okay. So, but a similar kind of group, you right? Know? Yeah, yeah, a European group that may not be as versed in um, in American racial dynamics. Yeah. Now, obviously, Spike Lee is a hell of a lot more versed in American racial dynamics than Martin McDonough, uh, who is Irish and British and white. But yeah, I think I'm, I'm curious to see too. And I think and and I think like all Spike Lee creations. I don't think the objective is a chorus of hosannas saying how no. wonderful it is. So like his objective is to mess with you, you mm-hmm. know, and like and like start a big crazy debate, yeah. you know. And I think, I think crazy in the sense of, you know, an active debate where people really he gets under your skin. Yeah, and I think sometimes those movies take a little bit longer to settle in than than maybe he would have liked or the distributors would have liked. You know, you think about something like Bamboozled from like 2000 that was like kind of a flop when it came out like in the fall but like since then I've read like a lot of kind of criticism about it and people thinking about that movie which is all about blackface and and I think Chirac probably will serve a similar purpose you know in the years to come so we'll see if Black, Black Klansman makes an immediate impact it's coming out it's being released in the summer because Spike Lee likes releasing movies in the summer, but also because it coincides with the one-year anniversary of the Charlottesville protest right. and mur- the murder of Heather Heyer. And- well, I mean, 30 years later, we're still arguing about whether Mookie was right or wrong to throw the right. you know trash right. can through the window right. of Sal's Pizzeria. Right. Like, and that was a Cannes film, do the right thing. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm hoping for... It's been a while since Spike Lee had a movie that made such an, an immediate impact that got yeah. people talking in the moment. Um, so I'm really hoping that that proves to be that. And a second prize at Cannes maybe helps it on that journey. And then the third prize, uh, which went to a movie that none of the English language or American critics anyway that I spoke to could figure out how to pronounce it. My best guess is Kaipernaum. Um, but it's from a Lebanese director named Nadine Labaki. And though it only won a third prize here... That was the one that I spoke to every single person who saw it. I missed it, unfortunately. Every single person I spoke to who saw it said that is going to win the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. Mm. It's about kids kind of going through, you know, sort of war, essentially. Apparently, it shows a lot of brutal stuff, but there's a sentimentality to it as well. But yeah, everyone was like, it's not going to win Palm d'Or here, but like, that's the front runner for the Oscar mm. already. So we'll see. And it's a woman director from Lebanon. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. that's something. So too. that's something, right? That's great. 
beyond that, uh, there were, you know, not the sexiest of awards. Best Actor went to Marcello Fonte from Dogman. Um, that's a movie from the director of that movie, Gamora, if you remember that, oh, about yeah. the uh, kind of s- southern Italian um, mafia. Best Actress went to a movie uh, that I, I didn't see. I don't know anyone who saw it, called My Little One. Uh, one interesting one to keep an eye on, well, two ones, is Pavel Pawlikowski, uh, who made Ida a few years ago and won the Oscar mm, for Best Foreign mm-hmm. Language Film, he's a Polish director. He won Best Director for Cold War, which is his follow-up to Ida, which is you know similarly shot in a kind of square aspect ratio, lush, gorgeous black and white. Uh, another post-war story about people trying to figure out what life means in post-war Europe. With a singer, a young woman uh, is sort of plucked out of obscurity from the, the Polish countryside and, and brought into this kind of communist propaganda traveling show of, of Polish folk music run by this older guy who then falls in love with her and they have this sort of tortured love affair that spans Europe through, you know, over the course of about 15 years. Anyway, the actress who plays this woman, she's very, very talented, beautiful singer, is such a dead ringer for Jennifer Lawrence in most of the movie that like it's it's astonishing. So I don't know. That's just sort of an interesting thing. But then at one point she like the light shifts and they're like, oh no, it's Kate McKinnon. So she's very really yeah yeah huh. yeah. But then she's back All to being right. Jennifer Lawrence. Anyway, it's a really really stunning performance. I, I wouldn't count that movie out for um, foreign language Oscar consideration. I mean, he's obviously you know been lauded by the Academy before. They like him. They they gave Farhadi two of them. Maybe they'll give this guy two of them. Um, and then the other one that I wanted to bring attention to before we put Can to bed is um, a movie that won the Camera Door, which is the uh, it was in the, the in certain regards selection. Um, and the Camera Door is the award that goes to the best first film. Uh, and this is from a filmmaker from Flanders, from Belgium, called Lucas Don't, who's this young, handsome kind of Xavier Dolan with a softer bent uh, kind of vibe about him. Uh, and his movie called is called Girl, and it is about a trans teenage girl in Belgium at a really intense ballet school uh, who is so trying to work her way through this this rigorous training while also transitioning. So she's getting hormone therapy. She's prepping herself for um, gender confirmation surgery. And um, it's a it's kind of very up close, very natural, verite kind of film. And the one, you know, and Pete got a lot of good reviews and people were really into it. Um, the one problem I see as it as the movie turns from France and looks maybe to North America is that the actor playing this girl is a cisgendered male. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe they consider them, themselves gender fluid or whatever, but from what I can understand, he presents currently as, as male. And I'm just not sure how that kind of thing is going to hold up to an American and North American press that is, I think, a little bit more sensitive and attuned to those particular nuances than maybe... <clears throat> European presses right now, especially a year after the fantastic after Fantastic Woman uh, kind of ran the table. For yeah, the yeah. Prizes. So I'll be very curious. And you know, Kyle Buchanan from Vulture did ask Lucas Don't, the director, about this, um, and he said during a press conference at Cannes after he won the award, um, you know, if if uh, if if we if we can if we can expect a gay actor to play straight or whatever, kind of making that comparison, which is not the same thing. Um, I'm. I don't know. I'm just. I'm, I'm just. I think that's going to be. It's the same thing. Well, I think that because sexuality and gender are sort of like gender is more about a sort of in, in you know. I don't know. I, I'm not, not going to answer that question correctly. <laughs> but like, I, I I understand there to be a fundamental difference because the two are while linked off, off often in like LGBT that T is in there. You know, I think that that gender and uh, is is much different. You know, than sexuality, sexual sexual orientation. So. So anyway, well, I I don't I don't think that it's a bad movie, and I think that you know when presented with the casting, you know you're like okay, we need to find a 
person this age who can do ballet, who lives in who lives in Belgium or whatever, you know, and who can present in a certain way like that. The casting pool for that becomes pretty narrow, you know. And also, if you, if you're cast, if you're if you're having someone play a teenage a teenager or a girl in 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 transition, not post transition or whatever. You know, I think it, it it's going to spark a lot of debate about how these movies are cast, how these roles are cast uh, in the future, and I think that that's going to be interesting to listen to and to watch. Um, I just wish that more there had been more discussion like that at Cannes um, while this movie was being shat, you know showered with praise and awards. Um, I don't think it's going to get as easy a reception here when it went. I, I'm, I'm sure it will be at Toronto, for example, or maybe New York Film Festival. So let's move on from Cannes and then on to something that uh, most people will be able to see this weekend. And Richard, that you saw at Sundance in January, uh, the movie The Tale by Jennifer Fox. It premiered at Sundance and I believe was picked up by HBO there and it'll be premiering on HBO this weekend. So you saw it in a theater, which most people won't see, right? Uh, Yes, I saw it at the Big Eccles Theater in Park City. Um, And, you know, this was a kind of a quiet Sundance. I mean, there was a lot of interesting stuff, but there wasn't a big breakout-y kind of Oscar-y call-me-by-your-name sort of thing. Um, So there's a lot of that at festivals going on this year so far. And that the tale was, you know, packed house. uh, And that felt like, okay, here we go. Like, here's a here's a here's a big kind of awards contender. Like, let's get Laura Dern an Oscar. And then HBO bought it. So let's get Laura Dern another Emmy, I guess, is the <laughs> is the new the new mission. And I think, I mean, you've seen it now, Katie. I mean, I, I think that she's at least not, if not a lock, certainly a, a strong contender um, because it's quite a performance. But I think also the other thing about the movie is that this is really Jennifer Fox's movie. Laura Dern is just sort of the vessel for that. Yeah, I mean, she is playing Jennifer Fox. It's this, um, Jennifer Fox is a documentarian who made this film about her own um, childhood and a, you know an experience she had that she kind of saw through new eyes as an adult and you can see her document documentarian self coming out on it like there's these staged uh interviews with the people who were pivotal figures in her past and you know, basically imaginary sit downs that she the documentarian wishes she could have now and i do see why maybe some distributors were hesitant to pick it up because when you start talking about this movie you have to say it is devastating it is difficult to watch yeah. there are parts of it that are some of the most uncomfortable things that i've seen it's you know i was uncomfortable watching it at home by myself it's hard to imagine like sitting in a theater full of people because um, it's about childhood sexual abuse and is really frank about it. It's not explicit and it's not um, – I don't think it's a, uh, exploitative in any way. But it definitely – it doesn't shy away from stuff. And a lot of that is um, on Jason Ritter who plays this um, running coach who was kind of grooming this girl who, when she was 13. Um, his performance, Richard, we were talking about this yesterday, is really incredible because it's – I mean, Laura Dern is great and she's the anchor of the film. But Jason Ritter I think has the most – morally awful character yeah, to play. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a nauseating thing to be like, oh, what what a brave performance. But like he's he's like playing this really detestable person with a lot of with like a lot of sensitivity and and you know specificity. And he really took it seriously. So at um Sundance, uh, Laura Dern I think was sick, had the flu, so she couldn't be like at the Q&As or whatever. But but Ritter was there and I think Tabicki was there. Um, but anyway, Ritter during the the, the first after the Q and A after the first the, the premiere, he started crying because mm-hmm. he was just like I like this was, yeah. was so hard to do like and there was a, there's a teenage actress I mean well there's a little mm-hmm. thing at the end of the movie that says like any scenes depicting we we, we they use a stand in they use an adult stand and they they didn't subject yeah this if you're looking if you're looking for it you can kind of see where they yeah. um you know they push around it because you I mean because this girl who plays the 13 year old like it, it does this kind of amazing thing in the beginning where a larger uh, character is kind of looking back at her memories and showing these flashbacks and it starts with this teenage girl playing her and then she finds a photo of herself at that age and realizes she was actually much younger looking and it recasts the young 
character and brings in this really young looking 13 year old um, who's really, I, I think his name is Isabel Nelise. She's really incredible in it. She has this like big open face and it's really childlike that you kind of, it just makes all what happens to her even more horrifying. She reminds me of, in a way, like she's kind of akin to the girl in eighth grade, Bo Burnham's film, which is coming out later this summer. Yeah. Um, just these two very, like, real looking kids with, you know, who's very credible, natural performances. Um, it's just used to such devastating end. Well, in both, actually, but in Tale especially. But I guess, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to spoil much about the plot, but like, for our sort of cynical purposes, this is a movie coming out in May. And it's really difficult stuff. Do we think that people are going to watch it? Will Academy, will Television Academy people watch well, it? Like, I, you know, it's making me think about Patrick Melrose. I mean, are you are you yeah. watching that? Because the I second episode of Patrick Melrose is the male version of you know it's it's him. The first episode uh, there's only two that have actually aired. You know, yeah. Um, so spoiler alert, but not that bad because they're already up. But uh, the first episode is him, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch as a guy in his, I guess, 20s, like dealing with heroin, trying to sort of drop heroin while going to his collect his father's ashes in New York. And the second one is him reliving. Uh, and it's really he's played by a much a very young kid. Um, you know, the abuse at the hands of his father, sexual abuse. And um it's intense, you know, and it's again, again, you can see how the the child actor is pr- protected. Like there's mm-hmm. not, and there's, it's not explicit either, but it's absolutely harrowing to watch. And the critical reception has been so far, like just basically, you know, universally joyous, right? Yeah. So I don't know yeah. what that means about the Academy. Uh, and I don't know if there's a difference between a man uh, and a woman in that, or, or a boy and a girl in that main role. But it seems like they're they do feel like a little bit potentially bookends, yeah. uh, and could both end up being in the Emmys. You know, yeah, yeah. No, I think so. And they're arriving just in time. I mean, the thing that about I haven't seen Patrick Mel- Melrose yet, but I am definitely curious about it, especially after reading these glowing reviews with the tale. Something that out of Sundance that bothered me, and I I saw um, other critics, kind of a few other most women uh, critics uh, articulate this better than I can, but. There was this temptation because at this year's Sundance, it was like 37% of the films are directed by women. Like, we're going to have all these women's panels where Harvey Weinstein's gone. We, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, there was all this momentum for the the tale to kind of make it like the Me Too movie of the festival and to kind of yoke it to this movement. And I understand that tendency. And I guess, you know, if that's something Jennifer Fox wants then or wanted at the festival, fine. Then it's a fine, you know, it's a good, I wrote this in my review, that it's like a, it's, it's a worthy kind of flag bearer for that if that's what the film wants. I don't know that it does. I think that the movie is so personal and specific that to kind of just tie it up with this broader thing kind of loses that specificity a little bit. So I'll just be curious to see how, well, both viewers, you know, just, and I'm, I think in a way that it's good that it's going to be on HBO and not released in, you know, six theaters across the country and then disappear into on demand or whatever. Like HBO is giving it an actual platform, you know, which is good. I'll just be curious to see how people kind of grapple with it. Uh, And um, I think what's undeniable about it is that the Laura Dern performance at its center is amazing. So she'll, she'll be in the conversation for a while, I think. And I think it's worth noting that it, I mean, it's definitely difficult to watch, but it's not wallowing in pain in the way that I think you, you might imagine the topic would be. And it's, it's so uh, cleverly crafted and the way that it deals with memory that it's kind of exciting for how inventive it is and all these risks that Jennifer Fox takes as a director that you don't necessarily see from other movies. So it's, it's, really satisfying to watch even though the subject matter is so grim so i really hope that people aren't scared off by it because it's, it's really rewarding to watch yeah not not the most cheery way to spend your memorial day weekend but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that is interesting, interesting timing, right, for, for yeah. uh, the release. But, hey, what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, like, as close as possible to the Emmys qualification yeah, deadline. The, the, the like, cutoff is the, the end of this month, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. So they they get it in there, so it's fresh in people's minds. So it didn't really work for Fahrenheit 451. But no, we actually we didn't really talk about that because Did you see I it? didn't see it because uh, there was a midnight screening and then a kind of a follow up one. And I, I'm so I'm so it was at Cannes, yeah, which is the I'm devoted part. to this job, guys. But like I'm a uh, midnight screenings. I tried once like two years ago. It was a mis- miserable. I didn't even get in. Didn't Ugh. you know? So I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do it. And then the reviews were not good. No. And so yes, I, I went to the um I, I wasn't able to go to the premiere in New York, but yeah. I went to the after party and you know even there people were like it "It was fine yeah you know which is which is great (laughs) that's something that we we should do a whole episode about different kind of party reactions even if you haven't seen the thing (laughs) 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 i remember going to a party at sundance that actually turned out to be really fun but in a weird way because the movie apparently was terrible yeah so there was like no stakes it was everyone was like ah screw the screw the movie let's just yeah right there's a there's like there is a set of euphemisms like it couldn't be more relevant right you know okay (laughs) all right let's drink away our troubles (laughs) yeah Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Okay, so Mike, we're going to share the interview that you did with Allison Bree. She is on the For Your Consideration circuit for season one of GLOW, and also season two of GLOW is uh, right around the corner, so it's kind of a two for one. Um, but anyway, I've listened to the conversation you guys had. She is incredibly like cheerful and engaging. Uh, I can only imagine what that effect is like in person. She's so cool. She came by herself and was like stuck down in the lobby, and like somebody called me, and I went down to get her, and so I was afraid that you know we'd gotten off on the wrong foot, but actually she she was uh, an absolute champ and super fun and cool. I think she's very excited about this role. Um, it is a big, you know, thing for her to be the lead, in, you know, in a show that has like Emmy possibilities. I also love that she uh, in, used the word kayfabe in the conversation, which is one of my favorite uh, new to me words. What, what is that word? Kayfabe, K-A-Y-F-A-B-E, is the term in professional wrestling for all the fake stuff that they do. Yeah. Uh, and it's used as kind of like a, a code word. Like if you're Hulk Hogan uh, or if I'm Hulk Hogan and you're, uh, you know, the junkyard dog, I'm aging myself with these references, and some like civilian comes in, we'd be like kayfabe. And then we would go into character because we don't want them to know that we actually are like totally cool with each other and we don't like actually hate each other. And to me, actually, I know people don't like it when I get into politics, so I'm just going to say that I do believe that kayfabe might be the most important notion for what's happening in our political uh, system right now. And so it's actually very timely. Uh, I think I think uh, a, a show like Glow, uh, Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, you know, it's about women's wrestling. It's about women finding power in, um, you know, it's, it's really a show about acting and an actress performing in a whole new way. So anyway, she, she was super cool. Hopefully you guys will enjoy the conversation. Anytime they show up by themselves. I always appreciate that. 
you know, I un- know, un- right? un- unattended to by a team or whatever. I yeah. was just like, all right, give her credit. It's kind of disarming, though. Like if, if you're, they're supposed to call you and all of a sudden you pick up your phone and like they're just on the other end. Yeah. Like, oh, hang on. <laughs> I was supposed to have a publicist. Right, right, right. For this moment. Yeah. So Allison was really cool. And yeah, hope you guys enjoy it. I'm thrilled to be here with Allison Bree, who is the star of Glow on Netflix and plays Ruth, also known by various other names in the show. Allison, this is such a fun role, a, a really interesting show. And I just wanted to ask you, as an actress, what's it like to play an actress who is going this far outside of her comfort zone and becoming a lady wrestler, for lack of a better term? Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> and it's also sort of what I'm doing. So it's very meta in a lot of ways. Um, when I first got the part and I had been fighting for this role and I was so ecstatic when I booked it. And then when I called my mom to be like, so I'm, I got the part. I'm doing this this show. And my mom was like, oh, so so is it just a, a wrestling reality show or... <laughs> I was like, Mom, no. I'm not just transitioning into wrestling. She was preparing herself to be supportive if that was the case, do you think? It was, yes. Yeah. I was actually very impressed that she had been <laughs> going along with it so supportively the whole time. You know, I love the story of Glow and the actual women that worked on the show that were, you know, none of our characters are based directly on real life women. Um, and the right. interpersonal stuff that happens between our characters is all completely fictional. But... This idea that the original cast of Glow was made up of actresses and models and some wrestlers, but for the most part, women who had never wrestled, who were just at a point in their career where they wanted to do something different or, or just were open to whatever option. And this random thing came along and we find Ruth in a place of really struggling and really feeling like she has so much more to give than anyone's asking to see and wrestling turns out to be this amazing outlet for her where she's she you know she has so much acting in her to give there she's never found a stage large enough to perform on on which to perform and uh the wrestling ring is that forum for her right in season one, it takes her a long time to figure out what her wrestling character is going to be. Right. But the idea of her being a heel was really exciting to me because as an actress, I've never really played a villainous character. Right. And I mean, sort of have had, I don't know, colors of that maybe, but like it just felt so different for me. Was that a challenge in the role? I mean, it, it's it's fun to watch you play the home wrecker, right? It's not really spoiling to say in the first right, episode, right. second episode, like you, you start getting tarred as the home wrecker. Sure. And everybody, you know, you got Mark Marin saying, I don't like you, you know, <laughs> like something about you that nobody would like. And it seems so odd because that's not you. You were very likable. But but yeah. what was what oh, was that like? I mean, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, did the, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but did the character am. did the character change when you got it or was it always mm, the same? I mean, I don't I'm curious. think so. I do feel like our writers like all writers for television, you know, are really good at honing into the actors on a show and writing yeah. to them a little bit. But I don't think that they changed the character a lot in terms of having me 
play it. I mean, I love how flawed Ruth is. Yes. I love that she has made this horrible state mistake. You know, it, it, in this first episode, we we're, we're just basically finding her at this breaking point in a lot of different ways in her yeah. personal life, in her work life, and she's trying to redefine herself as a person and as an actress and find another thing that speaks to her before she gives up. But I don't think in general that she is a terrible person outside of that large mistake. And um, as the show progresses, we learn a little bit about maybe why she chose to do that or was driven to do that. In season two, we go even further into sort of the friendship dynamics between Ruth and Debbie and and deeper resentments that had been growing for a long time. Oh, good. Okay. I'm excited Um, for that. Yeah. So it's interesting (laughs) to, to delve into those sorts of things. But I... I I just love Ruth as a character. I think she is can be very earnest to a fault, you know, and she just has a lot of fight in yeah. her. But we also see her get shit on a lot, yes. and yeah. she's prepared to take that role. You know, in the, in the Ruth and Debbie friendship, I think she actually is used to taking the less dominant, the, the submissive role in that friendship. And, and you know, maybe that's also part of what we saw her kind of rebelling against with this sexual act right. of deviance against her friend. Well, and I think it's a really nice setup where where you've got a character who everything about her is likable, but yes, she did an incontrovertibly bad thing sure. at the beginning, and yeah. so she's kind of living that down. So Betty Gilpin, who plays Debbie, is your main foil on the show. When did you guys meet, and how did that go? We met while we were still auditioning for the parts on the show. Uh, we auditioned together twice. Our first audition together, I was under the impression we were. I was flying to Toronto to do like another producer session. We all had to be in Toronto. Then I got there. It was a Sunday afternoon. It was just... Betty and I and Mm -hmm. some casting assistants alone in a room and we met. I said, I'm going to the bathroom. You should come with me. She came to the bathroom with me and we sort of like said our hellos and highs. And and one of the scenes in the audition sides was that first big fight at the end of the first episode that turns into a fantasy wrestling match. Right. So now... I was like, what do you feel comfortable with? I'm comfortable with anything. And she was like, me too. And we were like, let's just go for it. And next thing you know, we're in this room alone, like fully wrestling. She's dragging me across the floor (laughs) and throwing my legs. We were like sweating. Um, These poor casting assistants were like, that's fine. I think we got it. <laughs> you can <laughs> and, stop now. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, we went and had coffee after together. And, you know, it was we joke about it because it was sort of one of those meetings where we already were falling in love with each other. And we both wanted the parts so badly, but we didn't want to let ourselves hope that it was going to happen. Right. So it was like this very uh, protective conversation of like, yeah, it, it would be exciting. Um, You yeah. know, yeah. keeping a, a small distance. And then we auditioned a final time together in Los Angeles. Um, for our producers and our director, Jesse Peretz, and everybody. And uh, and then we got the roles together. And I think that auditioning together really helped us bond immediately because yeah. we both were invested in each other getting mm-hmm. the roles. And yeah. we would be texting in between um, about songs we were listening to to get in the mood for our next audition and things like that. And she was about to get married. So it was kind of I, we had and, and I was recently engaged. So we kind of had certain things in common right away. Right. And then when we got the parts, we really were like, we got to bond fast because the first episode of the show is really the only time that you get to see Ruth and Debbie 
and their actual friendship right. um, before everything goes south. Yeah. So we we really only have two scenes in the pilot where they're really close, good friends. Right. Yeah. And we wanted there to be a rich history there mm-hmm. that you could feel. So we just started texting each other all the time. Once she got to L.A., we hung out a lot. We went to a Pat Benatar concert. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. Pat Benatar and, and Melissa Etheridge. It was a great, <laughs> great night. And... um and I think all of that plays. It's always was very important to both of us that you feel like Ruth and Debbie really love each other. And so the stakes are really high for the two of them and that the audience should really want these two to get back together despite Ruth's horrible indiscretion. Right. For us, it was all about it's always been about the love between yeah. those two. You can't play the hate doesn't matter if yeah. you don't have the love. Right, right, right. That makes sense. How is the dynamic different from other co-stars you've had, given how much physical interaction there is? Oh, definitely it's the most intimate relationship I've ever had with a co-star. And I do think the wrestling has a lot to do with that, because right away we were doing wrestling training with all the women on the show and all getting very close physically. You know, a couple weeks into our wrestling training, Betty and I had to branch off to start choreographing that first fantasy match for the first episode. And so it was a lot of concentrated time between she and I in which we had to be very vulnerable in front of each other and we're assessing our strengths and weaknesses physically and how our bodies go together. Mm -hmm. And we really had kind of instant chemistry in the ring. I felt like it actually came very easily figuring out who should base a move and who should fly. And obviously she's a a baby face character, the good guy, and I'm the heel. So those things are already mapped out for us. But a big part of wrestling is protecting your partner and communicating with them constantly. So all of that stuff fuels acting. It's sort of like the same things that you need in in acting a scene, our our constant communication and openness and vulnerability and... To do that in a physical way, I think, translated back also into the character work that we were doing. Yeah. There's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens in the show. I mean, did you ever read a script and just go, are we really going to go there? Like, are they really going to put on KKK outfits? Or No. Oh, my God. It's 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 one of the great things about, about doing a show that's set in the 80s right. and that's set in the wrestling world because so much crazy stuff happens in in that world and we get to sort of use it as a great device to look at things like racism and stereotypes and right. uh, misogyny and things like that yeah. but also play with it in in some crazy ways every script is such a treat to read we never know yeah. where the show is going to go but i like that you know, the flip side of that is is that when we see the characters outside the ring, it's such a grounded show. It's yeah. not a broad comedy. So I feel like that tethers it to the real world and to, to we really want to show reality in a real way before we get in the ring and then start to get so larger than life and more broad than you could ever imagine. Yeah. Well, and, and I know that as a viewer, even as a male viewer, maybe especially as a male viewer, I'm thinking to myself, Jenji Cohan is the EP of this thing. There's yeah. a lot of women writing and directing, so we're in yeah. good hands. When it yeah. starts to veer into Mark Maron being like horrifically misogynistic, you think yeah. this is going to like pan out. Did you feel that way too, as an actor, like that you were in, good in safe hands. hands? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's such a wonderful set. I mean, the show is created by Liz Flayhive and Carly Mensch, two female right. playwrights, yeah. and Jenji Cohen's our producer. We have other Tara Herman's another producer on the show, and. Uh, 
60 percent of our directors are women. We have a lot of women on the crew. Our, our writer's room is almost entirely women. Yeah. And definitely you feel like, yes, we're looking at misogynistic characters <laughs> or situations, but they're coming from a female perspective. So we're never being exploited for the sake of right. those stories. There's a lot of trust. And with Glow, especially in season one, when we watch the women developing their characters, it is collaborative. You know, yeah. you have Sam, who's kind of running the show, and you have Bash, who really wants the women to have their stereotypical roles on the show to kind of embody that yeah. that 80s style of, of wrestling tropes, like those types of characters. But really, the women are kind of in charge of how they're going to tell those stories, yes. how they're going to play out those characters. Even with the KKK story, like... <laughs> That is a storyline that is developed through the women on the show who decide, you right. know, that they want to put that in the ring. Yeah. You grew up in Hollywood, didn't you? I grew up Hollywood adjacent. Yeah. I grew up in South Pasadena. Um, I grew which... up New York adjacent, so I feel like I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. South Pass really feels like a small town. Yeah. But is certainly close enough to Hollywood that, like, you're thinking about that kind of stuff, you know, uh... You know, Steve Urkel went to my high school before yeah. me and like, you know, they shot a lot of films in South Pasadena. So there was like it was around where you'd be walking by a house and be like, what's going on? Oh, they're shooting a movie there. It was <laughs> certainly around. And yet at the same time, I feel like I had a really wholesome high school career doing drama at school and like doing yeah. drama competitions and plays. What did you do in uh, drama club? Gosh, my senior year, we did Dracula the Musical. That was okay. our big spring musical. And I, I was the female lead, which was great. You had to, It was kind of like a system, so you had to kind of work your way up to sure. being yeah. the lead. When I was a sophomore, we did Two Gentlemen of Verona okay. musical. Uh -huh. um, and then Pride and Prejudice. Like in the fall, we did a more serious play. And in the springtime, we did a big, big musical. Yeah. And then we would do two festivals a year. And, you know, I would do like an all-female five-minute version of Waiting for Godot was like our, <laughs> what we would take to this this festival. I really thought I was super deep, very theater-driven at yeah. that time. I mean, why not? Yeah. And and what mattered to you? TV, movies? Like, what was the stuff that you were growing well, up and you loved? Look, I watched a ton of TV. Let's mm -hmm. be honest. Yeah. But it's interesting because even in high school and definitely in college, I went to CalArts and, you know, was studying theater. Yes. And I was really against acting in television. I was like very snobbish yeah. about it, even though I've always watched a lot of TV. You know, when I was a kid, it was like Saved by the Bell and all those shows and then Dawson's Creek and, sure. you know, yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of and things like that and Friends. And But I also watched a lot of movies. I've always really, you know, we had HBO and like with my dad, we would just watch movies over and over again constantly I'd watch old movies with him it was a lot of like actually I realized that it wasn't really old movies it was just like movies from the 90s like now they're old movies right, right. we were watching like <laughs> defending your life and like a lot of like movies from the 90s that people are like what is that movie and I'm like yeah. what I've seen it a hundred times were there actresses or actors that you watched and thought I want to do that oh yeah I mean I think of like Sigourney Weaver and Annette yeah. Bening and yeah. Frances McDormand and, uh, you know, Meryl Streep, of course. And yeah, I loved these women that kind of could play different types of roles. It's all the women I'm talking about have played really strong roles and uh, yeah. also could be really charming and were sort of character actresses. Yeah. And those were the women. That's like kind of the stuff that I was watching again and again. 
CalArts is like a very arty place. Yeah, like there's a lot brow. of experimental theater yeah. there, and certainly there, it's it's highly frowned upon to to have an agent or do anything right. like that while you're in school. Which of course I learned very quickly when I tried to have a commercial agent my freshman year of of school and. Uh, there's just no time. There was just no time. I would be so stressed out coming, trying to drive back in bumper to bumper traffic from Hollywood for, yeah. you know, being in town for a Pepto-Bismol commercial audition. Yeah. And then I was trying to make it back to, you know, do crew on a show. So basically at CalArts, you're, you're in classes from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And then you're, you're doing plays in the evening from 7 to 11. Either you're in a play or your first year, you're just doing crew on a show. So I was like in the wardrobe department and, yeah. you know, you have to, it's always about paying your dues and working your way up to different stuff like that. But but by the time you came out of it, you were like, all right, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to be a paid act, actor. Exactly. By the okay. time I graduated, <laughs> while I was in school, I was just only theater for me. It will only yeah. be theater. <laughs> and then I graduated and immediately was like, I want to work and make money. Um, so I'll do anything. But I actually think... The thing I realized more than anything after school was that I liked I liked acting so much that it didn't really matter the forum for it. You yeah. know, I, mm-hmm. I was auditioning for, you know, my first television job was on an episode of Hannah Montana on right. Disney Channel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I had just as much fun doing that as I had doing scenes from... Romeo and Juliet in college, you know, so it was like a great signal to me that I was like, oh, right. I love doing this. It doesn't matter. I really don't need it to be theater for the rest of my life or ever again. I really haven't done theater much since graduating from school. But you're, Which kind of bums me out. But it's nice that this character has a kind of a thespian quality, right? She definitely yeah. does. And I <laughs> definitely draw from a lot of my experiences at CalArts, I think, for Ruth, because she is such a theater gal, and she's all about the process and the work, and she really thinks of herself in a, in a you know, lofty way. <laughs> and, did, and was it hard to learn the wrestling stuff, and did you get injured at all? This is a yes and no to sort of both <laughs> questions because it's difficult to learn the stuff. We have a great wrestling coach, Chavo Guerrero Jr., who yeah. is a is a legacy. His uncle was a pro wrestler. His father, his grandfather, he comes from a long line. He grew up with a ring in his backyard since mm. he was born. So we're in excellent hands. And also we have an amazing stunt coordinator, Shauna Duggins, who is able to sort of translate things into the female body for us and break right. down moves. And the number one thing is safety because we work on a show and hopefully we want that show to run for years and uh, we need our bodies to be intact so it was baby steps when they first started to teach us wrestling you know we started with somersaults and things like that where we were like whoa we're doing it and then you could also be like oh I mean my five-year-old nephew can do that also Um, (laughs) but then (laughs) we slowly built up into into bigger moves like I think we spent a good amount of time laying that foundation so by the time we got to bigger moves our bodies sort of understood the most difficult thing about it is just overcoming the fear of having to dive head first quite literally into these moves yes um and there's really no in between so like the difficult part comes between like you're you're learning basics and you're learning basics and like you're kind of being shown how to do a move and then there's sort of just a point where like 
and now do the climb move. up on the turnbuckle and, and jump. jump off. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's there's no halfway to jump, right? You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and and pretty much all wrestling moves do not work. Like the way you'll get hurt is if you don't go 100 percent right confidently into the move. So that's sort of the hardest part was just having to commit fully to everything, but it made it so much easier to have this uh, support group of 13 other women learning the moves at the same time. And everybody had that same fearlessness that we were diving into all of these, these moves together. Um, And then in terms of it hurting, or I, I always say I never have gotten hurt but it does hurt. Right. <laughs> so right. I haven't uh-huh. been seriously injured. We've yeah. had no serious injuries, knock on wood, um, on the show. But, you know, battered and bruised. You, you sure. Truly, we came to learn very quickly that when we're shooting the matches, and the matches are highly choreographed, but it's fun when we get to play them to an audience, even though it's an audience of background actors. You know, you learn that you get filled with so much adrenaline that you feel nothing in the ring when it's happening. You're so powerful. You know, I get why people love to do this as a profession. It's really addicting. And you just feel like a god, and you just feel so strong, and then two days later, you just feel like you've been hit by a car. You know, and it was a lot of Epsom salt baths and uh, Arnica gel and like you know a lot of big bruises any bruises you see on our bodies on the show are real bruises real bruises <laughs> good to know just didn't cover <laughs> up in general it was really fun to learn the wrestling side of it and really empowering for yeah. all of us have you talked to like john cena or the rock or anybody have you have you met any of those guys i or haven't met the respect we, for them at all i definitely have a new respect yeah. for them because i just didn't know anything about wrestling before yeah. this so like the preconceptions about wrestling being fake or things like that i hate to even say that aloud because there's nothing fake about your full body weight landing on the floor of a of a mat of the ring you know like right. there's nothing fake about being thrown across a ring like you can learn how to land the right way to protect your body and maybe storylines are figured out in advance but the work the physical work that they're doing is extraordinary they're yeah. like improvising acrobatic gods they are like yeah. it's it's very athletic yeah sometimes we think we're doing something that's like so incredible and amazing and then you sort of watch the video back and you're like oh <laughs> like, yeah so then when i go and watch what professional wrestlers are doing i am blown right. away <laughs> we all the women uh, we all went in to watch a big wwe event before shooting season two and it was really funny because each match would start and we'd sort of lean over and be like, oh, we could do that. Oh, we could do that. Oh, uh oh. <laughs> Whoa. Right. There's you know, a like our mind is sort of built the yeah, a whole next level of things that I'm like, woo, I don't know if we'll ever be able to do that or if we should or if the insurance companies <laughs> will let right, us. Right, right, right. Um, but it's very impressive. I'm totally in awe of it. And the and just the types of performers they are. They have to perform to arenas of thousands of people and they and they keep up the kayfabe these stories are kept alive in and out of the ring yeah i was just gonna ask you about years. kayfabe that's <laughs> such an interesting th- i've just recently learned about kayfabe that word mm-hmm. which is the the sort of the act that like you are um you know hulk hogan 
And sure, it's, like it's anytime you're in public, you're going to be that character. Yes, that it continues outside of the ring and these storylines are basically always in play. Which is like, that's a lot of work. It is. It's a a real commitment to Mm -hmm. your job, to your passion. And I think that people get into it. You have to love it to want to commit to something like that, which I I find inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Um, let Let me shift gears a little bit and ask you, which cast is better at staying in touch, Mad Men or Community? Well, for me, Community. (laughs) (laughs) Community. But to be clear, you know, I I was a recurring character on Mad Men. I was never a regular on that show, even though I was in every season of the show. (laughs) Um, Which I just like to remind people. People always go, oh, yeah, how many seasons of that show did you do? And I'm like, all of them. All of them. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I'm sure. So I don't really know about the core uh, cast of that show. And I'm sure that they stay in touch with each other. But for me, the community chain, I mean, I literally I was texting them. 20 minutes ago. It is an incredibly uh, successful group of people, though. I mean, oh, you look yeah. at, I mean, you know, is there, are you talking to the Russo brothers about doing an Infinity War sequel? Oh, or? yeah. I've been yeah. trying to get into Marvel movies for years. <laughs> and now I'm like, hello, look at me on Glow. I can do this stuff. Right, yeah. Um, but I love the Russos. Joe Russo has always been a great mentor to me. And he used to say when we were shooting even the first couple seasons of Community, how much it reminded him of the cast of Arrested Development, which I thought was a great compliment. And he kind of predicted, he was like, I just feel like you guys are all going to go on to do great things beyond this show. Yeah. And um, he and he was right. Everybody has, has continued to have great careers. And that show, it really... That was really like a family for me. We were a really tight group and and we worked very long hours and did a lot of our our show had a lot of ups and downs. And I think that that really bonded us, too. Well, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I hope uh, I expect and hope that you and Donald will have a big reunion at the Emmys this year. Um, (laughs) So so. good luck with all of that. And thank (laughs) Thank you for coming to join us. Thank you very much. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, Please find us on Apple Podcasts. You can leave a review. You can leave a rating. And you can tell other people to listen to the show. You can find all of us still at VanityFair.com and tweet at us on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And we're all on our own. Mike's at Mike underscore Hogan. Richard's at Rylaws. I'm at Katie Rich. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best description of our thought process while watching The Royal Wedding goes to Mike Hogan. What would Kate think of this? Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through of Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through of Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>